0: To my knowledge this is the longest film we're going to discuss on this podcast. So so let's make this the longest episode of our podcast. Yes.
1: Hello and welcome to A Century in Cinema. My name is Arthur. And my name is Andrew. And this is a podcast where we watch and discuss a classic film from every year. This week we're in 1959 with Ben-Hur from MGM Studios and directed by William Wyler. For any new listeners, you can find where our movies are streaming or available to rent online in the link in our show notes. Andrew, where'd you watch this?
0: I watched this through Amazon
1: renting um, at my parents' house. I also watched this through Amazon renting. I find the irony of MGM being bought up by Amazon this week startling.
0: We gotta, t- we're gonna talk about that.
1: But I still had to pay my three ninety nine to Amazon. Yes, for their newly acquired rights to Ben Hur. Okay. You know what? This isn't a podcast about current (laughs) events. Back to 1959. If you're listening and enjoying the show, be a good Samaritan. Pause this episode and go give us a rating on Apple
0: Podcasts. A little Bible reference. I caught that. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) I do want to take a moment to point out that on Apple's app under the film history genre, A Century in Cinema is now under the list of popular popular podcasts oh my god along with about 500 other podcasts but we are now a popular podcast yeah thank you. uh well of course it's it's all thanks to our wonderful listeners supporting us
0: yeah
1: all out there in their little ways thank you so much for tuning in even if you haven't seen the films yes hopefully learning something new with us <laughs> in all of our episodes we have a little history lesson at the beginning what's going on in 1959. In the United States, Alaska and Hawaii are admitted into the Union, becoming the 49th and 50th states. NASA introduces the first astronauts to the world, the Mercury 7, who will go on to work in the Apollo program, coming soon. In Cuba, Fidel Castro comes to power after the communist revolution there. In Tibet, the Dalai Lama flees to India after a revolt against the Chinese is suppressed. And on TV... The Twilight Zone premieres. And in toy stores, you can go find the Barbie doll. Not a ton going on in 1959 compared to some other years, but, you know, still some interesting stuff.
0: What are the big movies coming out? We get North by Northwest from Alfred Hitchcock. I'm just assuming you've seen that because of your love for Carrie Grant. uh, I just watched it for the first time recently after we watched The 39 Steps. Oh, wonderful. Wonderful. Yes, such a funny movie. And then once it turns into pure spectacle at the halfway point, it really delivers on it. Truly thrilling. I loved it. Francois Truffaut releases his French New Wave masterpiece, The 400 Blows. Really great film. Billy Wilder releases one of my all-time favorite comedies. And whenever anyone says comedy does not age well... I point to this film because it is still, to this day, so funny. Some Like It Hot, starring <laughs> Tony Curtis, Jack Lemmon, and Marilyn Monroe. Disney releases my all-time favorite Disney princess film this year, Sleeping Beauty. Hiroshima Monomore, a really great film. Um Pickpocket is released this year, a really fantastic Brisson film. Good Morning is released this year. The Ozu film that you and I was, to my knowledge, both our introduction to Ozu. Super funny. film about farts. Yes. <laughs> uh, John Cassavetes starts up his independent filmmaking career, which is a huge deal for America and the filmmaking world at this point with Shadows, his tackling of interracial couples in modern America. All of the actors involved were theater friends of his. It was completely self-funded, and many point to it as one of the big beginnings of the independent film movement in America. And uh, one of the great horror films, classic horror films, House on Haunted Hill, if you haven't seen that movie, cannot recommend it highly enough. It's got the scares, it's got the spooks, it's got the effects, it's got a great script, great performances, just an all-around great film. And... Black Orpheus is released this year. Another adaptation of the Orpheus fable. And the whole thing takes place in Rio. It's a really gorgeous movie. I love it. So many. But those are some really major ones that came out this year. I will point out
1: that Rio Bravo from Howard Hawks starring John Wayne is the ideological answer to High Noon, our 1953 film.
0: But yes, more John Wayne. And then... One of the largest films ever made in the Hollywood studio system, and to this point, the largest film made in the Hollywood studio system, Ben-Hur, is released this year. When you say largest, what does that mean? Um, It had the largest budget at this point in film history, and it had the largest oh. sets built in history oh. at this point. And 7,000 extras, <sighs> which is a lot. They all had to be dressed, fed, transported. And protest. But we'll get
1: into that later. <laughs> what was the budget for this film? I just want to know. What the, what was the budget for this film?
0: Um, all I remember is that it has a 14.7 marketing budget, and that was considered huge at the time.
1: 14.7 million. I think it's somewhere... I think the production budget is somewhere around 15 million, which is twice as much as they expected. It's crazy how over budget this went. Yes, But adjusted for inflation, I'd have to look up the exact number. But I think if you adjust this for inflation, it's around $130 million, which is kind of like pocket change for the big blockbusters nowadays. I wouldn't call it pocket change. It's pretty substantial. Yeah, but like
0: every movie has a budget of $130 million nowadays, it feels like. All the big ones. Yeah, the big Hollywood ones. But 130 is like even the most expensive movies made nowadays are normally being 300 and 400 million. So that's like a solid quarter of that. Pocket change is the wrong word. I do apologize. I take it back. Watch your words, Arthur. We're responsible for teaching these people.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Why don't you go ahead and teach these people what happens in Ben Hur? Okay. You guys, I
0: literally scripted this for you all. So I hope y'all really appreciate it. Our story begins in that little town of Bethlehem where we witness the birth of Jesus Christ. After this prologue, we meet Judah Ben-Hur. I'll be referring to him as Judah. A Jewish prince living in Jerusalem with his mother Miriam and his sister Tirza. Judah's loyal servant Simonides visits with his daughter Esther. Esther is betrothed to Mary, but she and Judah immediately feel a connection. Judah offers her freedom as a wedding gift and a kind send-off. Judah's childhood friend, Masala, comes to visit Jerusalem as part of the Roman army. After reconnecting, they learn that their ideologies of the future are too different for them to be able to reconcile their friendship. Mm-hmm. Masala demands that Judah give him the names of Jewish rebels, and Judah refuses. Mm-hmm. A parade is held for the new Roman governor, and Judah's sister, Tirza, accidentally knocks a tile off of the roof and almost kills the new governor. Although Masala knows that it was a mistake, he is blinded by his frustration and love for Judah and imprisons his mother and daughter while sending Judah to the galleys. While in a chain gang, Judah is denied water from the guards. However, Jesus sees him and has pity on him and gives him a cup. Literally Jesus literally Jesus. Yep. (laughs) Judah spends three years as a slave on a boat. He and the Roman consul form a rivalry against each other. It is resolved when the boat is under attack and Judah saves the consul. The consul adopts Judah as a son and Judah goes to Judea as a Roman royal. Judah searches for his mother and sister, but is unable to find them. They contracted leprosy while imprisoned and don't want Judah to know. So they convince Esther to tell Judah that they are both dead In a rage, Judah vows revenge against Masala and decides to settle his anger with a chariot race. Yes. Meanwhile, Esther has learned of the man named Jesus and his alleged miracles. She attends the Sermon on the Mount and is moved to try and convince Judah that revenge is not the way, but he won't listen. Mm. The chariot race commences and Judah is victorious while Masala is fatally wounded. Right as Masala dies, he tells Judah that his mother and sister are not dead, but lepers. Esther convinces Judah that Jesus can heal Miriam and Tirzah, and so the four of them go to see Jesus. However, when they arrive, Jesus is carrying the cross towards the mountain, and all hope seems lost. Judah repays the service by attempting to give him water, but is kicked aside. Judah follows Jesus all the way to his crucifixion and watches in horror— Miriam, Tirza, and Esther weep, but Miriam is invigorated by the sight of Jesus' face. Once Jesus dies, it begins to rain, and the rain cures Miriam and Tirza's leprosy. Miriam, looking around and realizing where they are, turns to Tirza and says, I think we've already been her. And the credits roll. (laughs) (laughs) i couldn't resist the last sentence didn't happen to our loyal listeners who don't want to watch a four-hour film she never says that but i wanted her to so badly but that's the plot yeah
1: Ben-Hur is a 222 minute film, which is approximately 20 minutes less than Zack
0: Snyder's Justice League. Side note, Ben-Hur had the longest score recorded for a film because there's no light motifs or recurring themes. It's a two and a half hour long orchestral piece. And that was the record for the longest score for a film until Zack Snyder's Justice League this year. So there you go. Zack Snyder's Justice League. Truly the Ben-Hur religious epic of our times. <laughs> I haven't seen it, but I'm confident to say that. So. Uh, you need to go for have had, I had this. Just, no, yeah, because I've had
1: this film, this Ben-Hur film on my list of shame for a very long time. Big, huge Hollywood Golden Age film. Epic film of epic films. It, it, the poster has always sort of intimidated me. I mean, just look at it. Ben-Hur. It's big. Yeah, and I had it on this list for the century in cinema because I wanted to finally watch it. I felt like I had missed out on some big monumental moment in Hollywood history, and you tried to make me take it off. You said, "This is a bad film. you should watch something else." Not
0: say that. <laughs> <laughs> I fully admit I just want to take a moment. I fully admitted that I had not seen it in a very long time, but I did not have the fondest memories of it, and I low-key didn't want to sit through it again, and so I just suggested other films. But the films that I do not want to watch do get taken off this list, and this one didn't. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah, that is true. That is true. Okay,
1: but I'm going first. Yes. You know, I liked it. I think you had lowered my expectations quite a bit. And also going into a three and a half hour long film, you just kind of have to take a big, deep breath, tell yourself that it's okay to break it up into chunks if you need to. You are not trapped. You do not have to sit there. You can always look at your phone. And I did look at my phone sometimes during this film. So clearly, it is not perfect. But I'd be lying if I didn't say I was invested in the characters and that I loved the spectacle. I really, really loved the epic grand mm-hmm. scope of the film. And the characters are going through the classic Cain and Abel plot that I just am a sucker for. I love brother versus brother and that kind of like revenge story between Judah and Masala. And of course, it all culminates in the chariot race. That is, I, I, I don't need to say anything about it. It's already been said. And then it becomes a very strange religious
0: propaganda film, but we can get into that. Okay. I can't tell you how many times I've seen this movie because it was like one of those whenever it was on TV, the parents would put it on. So I've I've seen it in and out quite a few times, and I remembered a lot of the basic plot, revisiting it and watching it from beginning to end and like sitting down and making a moment of it and watching it with my parents. I asked them, oh, when was the last time you guys watched Ben-Hur? And they said, oh, Easter. And I was like, This Easter? And they said, oh, yeah, just a few months ago. I was like, oh. "Oh." (laughs) So that is still a part of their lives, you know? (laughs) That is still very much happening. I don't enjoy any of the Jesus stuff at all. I even think opening with the Bethlehem birth is, like, a complete waste of time and a total distraction. I think that the film folding into the Jesus narrative and the story folding into the Jesus narrative is enough. And you don't have to have it be this weird alongside narrative. You know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. And everything I
1: described was from the other side of the film, you know, the non Jesus stuff. That's all the stuff that I was totally into. And then the Jesus stuff happens, and it almost feels like the obligation that the filmmakers have to put into the film. I I, I don't want to say that they don't care about it, but the other stuff's. The more impressive stuff.
0: I don't know if it feels like an obligation. It feels like they are doing it with such reverence. One thing that is interesting, and I'm sure has something to do with religious appreciation or honor or respect or something, is that they never show Jesus' face. It's always partially obscured somehow. But I guess it's because no face could ever be as holy as that guy's face. But his skin sure still could be white. Definitely. But I guess everyone's skin is white in this film, so is it even a point to make? I mean, it's worth mentioning because, yes,
1: Romans were probably sort of whiter than the Middle Easterners they
0: were oppressing.
1: Yes. (laughs) For sure. (laughs) Uh, But everyone's white in this film.
0: There's a very strange depiction, because not everyone is white in this film. Oh, yeah. There is a very strange depiction of slavery and when it's the slaves that we are supposed to care about and have sympathy for, it's all white people and their deaths are tragic. And that is a part of Judah's narrative is he is a slave. But then there is also, I guess I would describe it as a minstrel show type thing that happens once Judah becomes a Roman royal and he's in the palace And it's a complete sight gag. There's no background given. There's nothing about the plot. It's just a troop of black actors, and they are all doing this very, I would call it, exotic dance. If it had been Judah sees it and says, oh, no, these people are slaves, too, or had some sort of moment of empathy, then I think it would be fine. But instead, he's drinking his wine and watching it and is mildly amused by it. But they're not the slaves we're supposed to care about. So, therefore, they are all played by black people. It is a very weird... Weird, I guess, implies that it's somehow hard to understand. It's totally obvious why that's happening. But
1: who cares what we think? Let's talk about what Bosley Crowther thought of this film (laughs) in 1959. Bosley Crowther, our go-to film critic to give us a glimpse into the zeitgeist of the era. I have not read this yet. He loves it. I can tell you that. He just loves it, loves it, loves it. Quote, within the expansive format of the so-called blockbuster spectacle film, which generally provokes a sublimation of sensibility to action and pageantry, MGM and William Wyler have managed to engineer a remarkably intelligent and engrossing human drama in their new production of Ben-Hur, end quote. I have never seen him this flowery in quite a while. He really loves this film. Definitely liked it more than Best Years of Our Lives, although he liked that one. Best Years of Our Lives, the 1946 film from the same director, William Wyler, about World War II veterans. Also a very long film, but the human drama in that, I would say... A little bit more captivating. I was more engrossed with the serious nature and drama in that film. Whereas this, I I did feel like my attention could slip every now and then. And even Bosley Crowther at the end of his review here says he could go on and on about how much he loves this film. But, quote, space does not permit it. Otherwise, this review would run too long, which is the one thing this picture does distressingly. Three hours and 32 minutes of it not counting intermission, is simply too much of a good thing. The simulated soul may be willing, but the tormented flesh is weak. End quote.
0: <laughs> <laughs> what a drama queen. That's so funny. Man, am I just, what's wrong with my brain, dude? Like, I this was nothing. This was nothing. This was easy. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Four hours is nothing now.
1: It seriously is, though, because what? We binge watch shows, five hour dramas,
0: seven hour dramas like that. Did you ever see that run up of The Irishman directed by Martin Scorsese that said how to watch The Irishman as I think it was 200 and something vines? Oh, no. And it's just <laughs> <laughs> it's just all of these different timestamps with different little quotes <laughs> next to them for what that vine would be called <laughs> that that is funny
1: yeah queen's gambit all those miniseries that the streaming networks are putting out now those are longer than this by a long shot and people eat those up so even though this is a very long film and even though long films exist i just i don't think people should be as intimidated by them as they put on about yeah i mean we joked about it earlier but seriously justice league is longer than this film and maybe not this film, but I wish more people
0: watched long films. I do want to tag on, though, that in the episode on The Best Years of Our Lives, Dan had mentioned that Pauline Kael would sort of become the new voice of criticism as Bosley Crowther died out. And this is not a film I would pin for Pauline Kale to enjoy, but she loved it. And oh, really? Yes, and she... Um, Pauline Kael said, I admire the artist who can make something good for the art house audience, but I also applaud the commercial heroism of a director who can steer a huge production and keep his sanity and perspective and decent human feelings beautifully intact. So, yeah, people applaud the human drama of
1: this film. And I do think it's there, but it just sometimes feels like it flounders a little bit.
0: It's it's interesting because the rivalry between them, you compared it to Cain and Abel, and I would agree with that. There, there are many rivalries like this throughout the Bible, but even the names and everything, it all ties into the biblical mythos in kind of an interesting way. So you feel like you're watching two biblical epics at the same time, one that is a fictional and one that is a document of the New Testament. That's interesting, I think. I like that it's, it's almost like a Gnostic gospel. If we pretended this was a real thing that happened. Right, right. It's this sort of lost tale. I like that idea a lot. Yeah. Yeah. It's fine. To our listeners who might not know this about me, I'm actually extremely well versed in the Bible. I was raised Southern Baptist and even competed in Bible bowls for a short time, which is where you are with a group of people and They either call out a verse or a quote, and if they call out the verse, you have to be able to recite it, and if they call out the quote, you have to be able to tell them what book, chapter, and verse it is. It's a very intense competition, and I took it very seriously, and I've read the Bible all the way through a very minimum of four times, probably more if you consider how many times I have read different sections of it and pieced stuff together together. So I'm very familiar with that tome of a book. Maybe that's why I can watch four-hour movies and don't have a problem. (laughs) I don't know. Watching something like this will always sort of scratch a little itch in me that I enjoy getting to sort of revisit that part of my brain, which is honestly so rusty at this point because I haven't studied the Bible or been a very religious person for, I don't know, 10 or 12 years now.
1: And, you know, even if you haven't competed in Bible Bowl, you know this story. It's Jesus. And I think the entire Western civilization can get quite a bit of enjoyment out of this because it's the familiar tale of Jesus Christ of Nazareth and the crucifixion. But it's I mean, I I hate to kind of sound like a heretic, but this is kind of like fan fiction, isn't it?
0: Oh, it's very much fan fiction. I mean, The fact that there is a character named Esther and she is a slave woman and she does fall in love with a man of a higher status who is essentially her owner and then is able to persuade him to change his mind. That's literally what happens to Esther in the Old Testament. That's the whole thing. Well, she's not a slave. She's concubine is even a rough word for it, but she is among many women who are vying for this one man's dedication in marriage and the Mm -hmm. way she approaches it is by changing his perspective on religion and God. Mm -hmm. So even that whole aspect of the story is very wink wink. Did you ever read the Old Testament? Because it's so because Esther happened. I don't know. I don't know how time works. Thousands of years, hundreds of years. Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm sorry. I don't know. I don't know either. The Bible doesn't really give you much in the way of timelines, just gives you a bunch of genealogy stuff that is impossible to trace or decipher unless you spend your whole life doing it, which I did not want to do. But you know who did? Lewis Wallace. (laughs) Oh, tell us about Lewis Wallace. (laughs) So Lewis Wallace, he is the writer of Ben-Hur, A Tale of the Christ. It was released in 1880. He was a union general in the Civil War. But there's some interesting stuff on him. But he studied law for a long time and wrote a lot of law documents and law theory. And as a way of sort of exercising his brain outside of law, he started writing biblical fiction. So this literally is the fan fiction from the guy who has to write law. You know what I mean?
1: Right. And it's recent fan fiction too it's from the late 1800s yes it was a very popular book back then right it was
0: huge people loved it the book rights were the most expensive at the time which is hilarious because now it's public domain so you know at the time i'm sure they don't regret buying it but it's just funny how that money is useless and meaningless at this point (laughs) so he to my knowledge, did not have much in the way of say so with any of the film adaptations. But it is interesting because this movie opens, I think it says a film by General Lou Wallace, which is funny because I thought, oh, William Wyler directed this. But I'm guessing it started around the 90s forward. A film by, you always put the director's name there. So I think that's interesting. So, MGM scooped up these rights, and they were super excited about it, and they made a silent film adaptation of it in 1925, and to this day, it is considered hugely influential mainly because of its chariot sequence, which this film lifts images from directly, and also imagery used in that sequence was lifted And use as homage in the pod racing sequence in The Phantom Menace. Oh, of course. I knew it. So, it is considered a hugely influential film. It used the two-color technicolor technique, which we mentioned briefly. Guess when the two-color was used? Jesus scenes. Whenever Jesus was on screen, the movie was in color. When that film was released, it was a huge success. Pretty much in the early 50s was when talks of a remake in sound and color and hopefully cinemascope or widescreen started to be tossed around. And I believe in 57, things really started to cement that this was going to happen. William Wyler was going to head it because he was known as one of the all-time great directors already at this point. Keep in mind... There are actors who notoriously would sign on to William Wyler films without having even read a script because they wanted to be in a William Wyler film. And I think 14 actors won Oscars from William Wyler's films. So people saw him as a ticket to an Oscar. And Charlton Mm -hmm. Heston got an Oscar from this film. There you go. It worked.
1: Yeah, we talked a lot about the Oscars that the best years of our lives got swept Mm -hmm. that year
0: and this film won 11 oscars which was the most of any film until titanic tied. it is worth mentioning
1: i think for the production of this film that it was the definition of a tentpole picture like the mgm studio was banking on this film to hold them up they were facing bankruptcy and this was kind of a gamble for them but it was the production and success of the other biblical epic film, The Ten Commandments, earlier in the 1950s that convinced them to go full steam ahead and go all in.
0: Yes, that was really what got the ball rolling on the project, because, you know, as I said, it was in talks in the 50s. But when that film was such a huge runaway success, they went with it. There is an infamous scene. It's even featured in the documentary The Celluloid Closet, which I have mentioned before in this podcast it is when we first see Masala and Judah meet each other after a very long time. And the actor who played Masala, Stephen Boyd, he had been informed by the director and the screenwriter that the dynamic they were aiming for was that he and Judah were previously lovers and He told Stephen Boyd this and then said, but we cannot tell that to Charlton Heston. When they had written that and conceived that, it was when it looked like Kirk Douglas might be taking the role, who would have been way more on board for something like that. Hmm. It had already been a struggle to bring Charlton Heston on, mainly because Charlton Heston saw this as a step down, as he had already played Moses previously in the Ten Commandments, which, you know, that's fair. You've already played the main character in the world fan fiction written thousands of years ago. Now you got to play the main character in the fan fiction of the fan fiction. <laughs> <laughs> they said you cannot tell Charlton Heston that this is the gay that there was a gay romance between you two. And when you watch that scene of them first meeting, it's in their eyes. You can see that Charlton Heston is acting as if this guy is sort of a brother. And Stephen Boyd is looking at him as if he is the love of his life. Oh is yes, such a good scene. And I think that that adds to their dynamic because it's clearly Masala who is hoping to somehow rekindle this. And it's clearly Masala who is actually gay. There's even this weird part in that conversation where he said, oh, you know, my sister was always so in love with you, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, thinking, you know, maybe they can make something happen. And Masala just says, yes, well, and then (laughs) continues forward. And then in one of the iconic moments of queer cinema, They have a spear-throwing competition, and we literally get to see their dicks cross on the wall. Right?
1: Their scenes are riddled with symbolism. It's all there.
0: I, You know, again, it had been so long since I saw this, and when they threw the spears, I (laughs) thought, oh, well, that was not subtle at all. (laughs) You know, I mean, I don't know. It's just these huge phallic symbols, and they throw them at each other into a wall. You told me that this was the gayest
1: sword and sandals film Hollywood ever produced. So I was looking out for it. I did not need to kind of be on the lookout for this. It's on the surface. Okay. So, but what I said was right. Oh, yeah. And Masala even has the line. I think it's Masala. There's even the line about how the relationship between Jerusalem and Rome is like unrequited love. Like it's clearly an important line. Yes. Yes. I thought it was going to be subtle. It's not. It turns out that one of the screenwriters, and it's important to remember that there's like five, six, seven, some number of screenwriters credited to this film. It's a huge production under the MGM studio. So they have the script being passed around between a lot of writers. But one of the writers is Gore Vidal. Do you know anything about Gore Vidal?
0: That name sounds insanely familiar. Continue. He is a...
1: American intellectual who would become pretty famous in the 1960s because he's very left leaning and he's openly bisexual. He gets into the political arena, and there's all sorts of stuff to say about that. He has gone on the record saying that he felt that Masala's character would not have the sort of insane reaction against Judah Ben Hur unless he was a spurned lover. So I do think that that is Gore Vidal's influence on
0: the script. The book I know Gore Vidal from is Myra Breckenridge, and also his notorious interview about Roman Polanski, where he very much defended Polanski. Oh, shit. When asked for clarification on his statement, he said, the media can't get anything straight. There's usually an anti-Semitic and anti-fag thing going on with the press. <laughs> um, you know, it's just, I'm not going to talk about Roman Polanski on this podcast. So, anyways, what were we talking about? Are we talking about Ben-Hur? Who saw this movie? Have you guys seen this movie? <laughs> 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 write, a, write a comment on Facebook if you're ever going to watch Ben-Hur. <laughs>
1: Oh, the homosexual subtext in the film is just text, in my opinion.
0: Yeah, that's fair. I mean, it is subtext in the fact that no one says, I'm gay, and then two guys don't have sex. (laughs) No, that doesn't happen. (laughs) I want a flashback scene of Masala and Judah's one night of passion. I do think it was a one-time thing, and it was one of the situations where Judah looked at Masala and said, okay well, I don't think I want to do that again. And Masala said, oh, yeah, me neither. And then cried into his pillow for the rest of the night. Why don't you get on that?
1: Why don't you get the fan fiction of this fan fiction Of the fan fiction.
0: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I am 100% sure that already exists. There is no need for me to write that. (laughs) Anyways. There's a really good chariot race in this movie. (laughs) There is. When My takeaway from it, even though I didn't much enjoy the rewatch, was, okay, this is stunning. The dummy work versus the stuntman work was kind of impossible to tell. Especially when I thought for sure, oh, one of the dummies was when Masala got run over by a chariot. But then I found out that one wasn't a dummy. He was wearing this metal thing underneath his costume and let the chariot roll over him the horses trampling him which is a cut that was a dummy but before that cut when he just comes off the chariot and it rolls right over to him that was him in like a metal guard thing good lord charlton heston doing that front flip out of his chariot landing back was an accident the stunt man who did the front flip flew out of the chariot and landed on the ground mildly injured, but they really wanted to keep that in because they love the way it looked so much. And they realized, Oh, we could cut that right there and make it look like it's Charlton Heston's character who flies out of his chariot and then comes back into it. A lot of crazy stuff going on. And the fact that we don't know if someone died or not on set is really disturbing There are many accounts saying that someone did, and then there are just as many accounts saying that no one did, and there doesn't seem to be any actual fact or documentation of it. So that's fun. You feel like you're watching a stunt where someone could die multiple times throughout the sequence. Oh, yeah. Not
1: only that, but cuts. I mean, there was way more of this filmed. There was way more of the chariot race that was going on than what we see on screen. Who knows what was left on the cutting room floor that didn't make it in the final film?
0: So the ratio of footage shot to the footage used was 263 to 1. See? So who knows? Yeah. There's so much more to this sequence that we'll never see. I want to see just the chariot race cut. That's four hours of the chariot race.
1: (laughs) And I, man, I don't want to like play into the urban legends that surround this scene, but it is just horrifying watching the stunts. And you know, this wasn't filmed in a Hollywood studio. It was like filmed in Italy, right?
0: Yes. And it took them six months just to build the set. They literally dug into the ground and then built this huge auditorium. And there were 3000 extras for this scene alone that were inside of the arena.
1: And then, of course, all the people are actually riding chariots, you know, that's well, there's very little like composite work. Of course, there's no green screens,
0: just people actually racing chariots, including Charlton Heston and Stephen Boyd, who notoriously were driving their own chariots and were only subbed out for stunt doubles occasionally, I mean, again, the major stunt where it doesn't even really feel like we see Boyd's face, it doesn't feel like there's a reason for it to be him. But the major stunt of him getting fatally wounded by being run over by his own chariot was the actor himself.
1: If they had to cut to hide the stuntmen who were actually riding the chariots, they
0: would have and they don't. It's And then because we don't know any of the other chariot riders and they aren't characters and don't need to act, those guys are all just stuntmen the whole time. So, horrible things happen to them. Their chariots are getting blown they up get with hurt. dynamite and stuff. And you're like, oh, no, there's no way that that guy didn't get injured doing that. Like, even if it was just a sprained ankle, there's just no way. You're watching it and you're thinking, nope, you hit the ground that hard, something's going to snap. Yeah, but
1: all the ingredients are there for something really terrible to
0: happen. And, yeah. It's a rough moment, but it was easily the best part of the film. And you know what's really funny? It wasn't even directed by William Wyler. No, it was the second unit directors. <laughs> and they, they originally were planning on Wyler to direct it and had presented Wyler and his first AD with footage that they shot using just stuntmen. And it was, it was just sort of a, a working cut thing. And Weiler saw that and said, oh, you guys should just direct this because I have no idea what I'm doing. And this looks really insane. I think that was a really good move because it separates this sequence from the film in a visual way that is really wonderful. It gives us this, this very unique flair. William Wyler in general is very knowledgeable about the language of cinema and is a rule follower, which is something I really respect, truly. The entire film has a very consistent aesthetic and a very consistent use of camera movement and angles and lighting. And it all feels very cohesive. And then this one moment of brutal force where the entire plot comes to a head and the main, the main confrontation of the film hits its peak. It turns into this very shaky, very uncontrolled and manic movie for about 10 minutes. And it really makes everything work. I think it makes the sequence work much better than if Weiler had attempted to direct it himself after seeing the test footage. Yeah, that's a good point. Also, Sergio Leone worked on this sequence. He was one of the assistants, I believe, to Andrew Martin. Andrew Martin and Yakima Kenneth were the two second unit directors who directed this sequence. And I believe Sergio Leone was Andrew Martin's assistant, and we will be talking much more about him when we discuss his Western classic, Once Upon a Time in the West. Hmm. So that I thought that was really interesting that he was there on set. Another really interesting part of this movie, like I said, about 3,000 extras were used Mm -hmm. 7,000 extras were hired. And then by the end of the filming, they were only using about 1,500 a day because they realized they didn't need the crowd shots to be filmed. So they ended up with a bunch of people who were hired and then all of a sudden fired. And so they started a huge riot outside of the set and they didn't stop until the police arrived, but there was, it was thousands of people. It was like over, over 3,000 people protesting outside of the set because they'd all been kicked out of their jobs, some of them without even filming a single day. So that's interesting. What a story
1: around this one scene. I love it.
0: Yes. And that, that feels like something that would happen from a second unit directing a thing. Do you know what I mean? What a riot? What I mean is William Wyler veteran of the game knows exactly how to handle extras and how to handle stuff like that not having too much of a hand in this scene and all of a sudden we have two second unit directors who are brilliant when it comes to filming these stunts but probably have never had to worry about wrangling extras or knowing how many people to bring on a set i have nothing to back that up for all i know william wilder was directly involved It's just funny how this film notoriously had so many extras involved in it in general. And this is the only sequence where people were fired and people weren't used. Mm -hmm. I just think that that might have something to do with the fact that, oh, well, you guys are going to handle it. And they thought, oh, yeah, we can totally film this. And then next thing you know, they have thousands of people outside the gate saying, hey, we were supposed to work today.
1: (laughs) I don't have much else to say about the chariot scene. I could just talk about how crazy it is and how the stunts look like they kill people.
0: I think that is the main takeaway from this film and culture. And I think it deserves its spot. It does look extremely dangerous. We will never be able to make anything like that again within film.
1: And probably
0: for for good good reasons. But, you know, regardless of that, I'm happy it exists. I'm happy it exists and I'm happy we can watch it. Um I was sad I, I I honestly was sad that I didn't just fall immediately in love with this film. Similarly to my more recent revisit of Gone with the Wind, I found myself just detached from it and unable to love it with the same fervor that I used to. Oh, so you used to love this film. Not as much as I used to love Gone with the Wind. Okay. Definitely okay. not, because Gone with the Wind I would actively seek out, and I would go see it at the Alabama Theater when they would play it in that huge screen.
1: I mean, I love epic films. Lawrence of Arabia is coming up in just a few years. I think it's 1962. Oh, exciting. That film is just gorgeous. It's perfectly crafted. David Lean is an amazing director. Mm-hmm. I love that film. But I don't love this film. And is that just because I am so disconnected from... The religious themes that are so important to this
0: film and what it's trying to do. I don't think the really heavy handed religious material works for this story that well. I think it creates an inconsistency and it also sort of creates a literal deus ex machina at the end. Oh, yeah. For me, this movie does not mesh entirely well which is funny because i just talked about how the chariot race scene doesn't mesh and that's why it works but the other stuff no, i think
1: there are yeah i think all the stuff with the lepers and the crucifixion
0: at the end that all feels so it becomes very preachy literally preachy and that's frustrating because there is a good story in here and i even think if it took place at the same time as jesus and Everything was there it, my literally my main criticism with this film is its opening scene. I think opening with that Bethlehem scene is a it's a misread of what the movie itself is. Jesus' birth has nothing to do really with the main story. It's just sort of there because we're not confident you guys are going to figure out this is Jesus. You know what I mean. I mean
1: Jesus shows up to give water to Judah Ben Hur but then he just disappears then he comes back at it doesn't yeah the thing it, he's just kind of there to sort of teach Judah Ben Hur that revenge is not the answer forgiveness is the answer yes <laughs> do you believe that after watching this film it feels very tacked on The greatest part of this film is the revenge story. And (laughs) Jesus is like supposed to be this humble carpenter. And then the greatest parts of this film are the excess, the decadence of the chariot race. And, you know, how many extras can we cram into these scenes? And look at our naval ship battles. Isn't that insane? It just doesn't work with the themes of this film, what it wants to do, what it wants to be, this big, giant, epic thing. And then you have little Jesus. It just doesn't work. It doesn't mesh. You're right.
0: The most egregious Jesus scene had to be when for no reason whatsoever, Judah is walking by and this guy goes up to Joseph, Jesus, his father, and says, shouldn't he be working with you with the wood? And he said, oh, no, he's out in the fields. And he says, well, he's not working very hard. And Joseph's like, oh, no, he's working for the Lord or something. I don't know. That was the worst. (laughs) That didn't serve anything for the film at all. The thing is, is that if you were familiar enough with the Bible for this film to appeal to you, then you would be familiar enough with it where it didn't have to bang the stuff over your head. Because the whole thing is that when Jesus dies on the cross, the sky splits open and a cleansing rain comes down. That's in the Bible. It's in all four Gospels. So that's already an established fact. So if we didn't have the Jesus stuff going on and the mom didn't have the huge epiphany about seeing his face, you know, if we didn't have any of that and maybe they were, I don't know how you would do it. I don't know how exactly you would do it, but I would have just loved for just a silhouette of the cross in the background so that the audience knows, oh, that just happened, and then for the rain to come and them to be healed and no one to really know why, and for it to be an actual deus ex machina within a plot convention where even the characters are completely unaware as to why that happened. That, I think, would have been a lot more unique and interesting as opposed to the movie slamming it in your face. It was because of Jesus. You know? Oh, yeah, I feel the same way, but I am curious if then
1: it would have the same appeal to, well, people like your parents, religious people who just want to turn this on and enjoy it. Definitely. We were kind of joking that Zack Snyder's Justice League is the Ben-Hur of the modern era. The IP that surrounds superheroes is sort of like the uh, free IP that you get from the Bible where there's a built-in audience for something like this, that you can spend fifteen million dollars in nineteen fifty-nine money and kind of feel okay about having a good return on your investment if you're like, yeah, the story's about Jesus. I
0: can see that, but I again what I you know, what I said was people who are familiar enough with the Bible for that to mean something would be familiar enough with the Bible for it to still have that exact same meaning Without those scenes being, But man. fans of the Bible want to see the iconic
1: stuff like there in front of them. They want to see Pontius Pilate sentence Jesus to death. They want to see him carry their cross through the streets. I mean, that's what that audience expects to see from a religious epic.
0: Christians will be the last to admit it. They're the reason the torture porn genre is so big. <laughs> Passion of the Christ. It's true. Huge film. Huge Passion of the film. Christ is horrible movie
1: you mean horrible like it's tough to watch or bad movie no i detest that film Uh oh i haven't seen it okay (laughs) horrible movie well going back (laughs) seriously though i do think that the jesus stuff that gets so shoved into your face is what makes this movie very popular and have a lasting impact with a, a huge section of the population people still watch this movie like you said that's the sense i get that's just the that's just the feeling i get any any thoughts i mean this is the era of epic films david lean just had bridge on the river kwai come out oh
0: i've already talked about it before on this podcast but oh my god what an amazing movie have you seen that one
1: yes it's an amazing movie i love that film again baked in audience world war ii fans
0: yeah, that's a great war movie.
1: David Lean's an incredible director.
0: I've, I've already talked to you about Blythe Spirit. I don't think you have. I forget what I talk about when I have. Um, There's this set that I have, and I love it so much. It's Noel Coward and David Lean. Noel Coward is one of the greatest playwrights of all time. David Lean, one of the greatest filmmakers of all time. And they made four movies. David Lean directed four Noel Coward scripts, and my all-time favorite Noel Coward play is Blythe Spirit. It's this hysterical farce about a man and his wife who, as a joke, hire a medium to come in for a party and summon in a spirit, Mm -hmm. and she ends up actually summoning in the ghost of his ex-wife. And she turns into a poltergeist in their house and it blows up from there. It's a hysterical play. And David Lean's film adaptation is just as funny as any stage adaptation you will see. But on top of that, he has these revolutionary special effects for the ghosts and the way the spirits are summoned. There are so few comedies that are able to have huge spectacle be a part of their appeal. And this film has both and it's everything. It's it's probably my favorite David Lean film. I love it so much. So that's my David Lean recommendation since we're not, I don't think we're doing an episode on him at any point.
1: No, sadly. Um, any final thoughts on Ben-Hur, Andrew?
0: I do think it's an important movie and I do think the chariot scene is incredible. I would recommend it, but you've all heard what I had to say for the past hour. It's um, uh, it's a mixed bag for me, but the stuff that is good is incredible.
1: Yeah, a mixed bag for me too, but man, I still really liked this movie. Yeah. Maybe I was expecting something worse, something more religious, I'm not sure, but there's plenty to like for someone who doesn't like religious films. Mm. I would agree. It's properly epic, and I do love a good epic film. Carve out your day, really settle in, and just... Get lost in the the sword
0: and sandals epic. It's cool. so interesting that MGM was in this dire financial state when they made this film and risked it all in a heavy way with how much this movie cost. And it was huge success, huge financial gain. And then 60 years later, make a remake that flops so hard. And they even moved that film's release date to late summer because they thought they could really pull off a an epic with a huge box office return. And it flopped so hard and they've been trying to recover so much from it. And now they've been bought by Amazon because they have no other choice. So
1: Ben-Hur put them on the map in the 20s. Ben-Hur saved them in the 50s. Now full circle. You know, but MGM for a very long time has just basically been a distribution arm for James Bond films. You do not see the lion roaring in front of many movies these days.
0: We didn't even talk about the lion not roaring at the beginning of this movie, which was hilarious to me. So what I said was that he was about to roar and then someone showed him the runtime for the movie and he got so distracted by it that he he forgot. and then they yeah he just goes and then it just fades to black
1: (laughs) (laughs) apparently they believed that the lion roaring didn't feel like it was tonally correct for the birth of christ in the next is that true I
0: read it on Wikipedia. I don't know if it's 100%. I mean, that's where we get a lot of our stuff. So I don't know why being sarcastic about it. It's just, that's so funny.
1: Do I have anything else to say about anything? I mean, we're here
0: at the end of the, we're here at the end of the fifties, 1959. Another decade. I can't believe this. It's going by too quick. My little baby's growing up too fast. (laughs) We are 10 weeks away from being halfway through.
1: That's weird to think about. I don't want to think about it. It's
0: so weird to think about. I didn't ever think we were going to make it to this point. Have we gotten better at doing this? Definitely. Oh, yeah. The episodes are so much better now. You listen to the early ones now. And I don't say the first episodes are bad because I'm still proud of the content, but we have just gotten so much better. At the end of each decade, we have
1: always had a moment to just sort of digest what we went through, talk about what we really noticed about film history for the past 10 episodes, 10 years, and then talk about our favorite moments, our least favorite moments. We laugh, we cry. Andrew. What what do you think? What do you think the 1950s really mean for film history? What's going on?
0: So I really liked the international flavor we had this entire decade. I loved getting to go into Soviet film and getting to go into Japanese film, starting it all off with a French film. I think that film at this point is completely comfortable as an art medium. And throughout the 50s, People are trying to push it out of its comfort zone. Orpheus is, you know, this attempt at telling a simple narrative that has a much grander meaning when put into the context of the director's other work. So it's sort of, you know, a director making a statement on auteur theory within their own film. Hmm. You have High Noon, which is doing this super ambitious concept of making the time that a movie lasts a part of the plot itself. Then you have, of course, Ozu and Mitsuguchi, who had, you know, in their defense, had already been doing all of this stuff up to this point. But they are telling much more mature stories and telling stories that, if written on paper, would not come across as cinematic. Mm -hmm. And then proving that with film you can make anything cinematic. You know, Rebel Without a Cause just making this huge criticism of the decade it's in cranes are flying is like, look, you can just throw a camera around and things still look really cool. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't even have to talk about invention for destruction or Ben her in this aspect. I'm sure like they both just broke new ground with what you could do visually and on a level of scope. So it, it really feels like this is a very boundary pushing decade and it's within America at this point the Hayes Code is so hated by everyone, even conservatives within Hollywood. And we are just a few years away from that finally just completely being eliminated. And I think content-wise, especially in Rebel Without a Cause and the searchers, I can see that that push of, okay, we want to be able to do things that are a little more risque and a little more boundary pushing with our films. So I think that's 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 how I would define the films we watched in the 50s.
1: Pushing the boundaries, filmmakers, especially in Hollywood, feel pressured to push all sorts of boundaries right now because you have everyone at home owning a television. So you see all the gimmicks, the cinema scope, more color film and gorgeous Gorgeous landscapes in order to separate cinema from television. And I do feel like those boundaries are being pushed because they have to be in order to keep the cinematic art form alive in the face of those changes.
0: Mm-hmm. But
1: yeah, it gets grand. The the scale just kind of explodes, doesn't it? Yes. And I feel like this is the first decade. I mean, I would recommend a ton of the older films that we watched, but this is the first decade where I feel like we're starting to see movies that modern audiences have already kind of sought out. You know, that's not fair because I just know people who were alive in the 1950s. So people I know who have seen High Noon, Rebel Without a Cause, Ben-Hur. But these are popular films. I do feel like this is a lineup of films that meet a certain criteria that modern audiences expect from cinema, quote unquote. Also, I want to point out the nuclear anxieties that seem to be prevalent in a lot of our films. The Thing, Godzilla, Rebel Without a Cause even has it, An Invention for Destruction. Just like in the 1940s where movies were reflecting the anxieties of World War II, now you see a lot of the Cold War seeping into movies, even when you kind of don't expect it. Mm Mm-hmm. I also think it's important to point out that the 1948 Paramount decree that destroyed the vertical monopoly that Hollywood studios had on American theater chains is starting to really take effect because a film like Ben-Hur only exists because the studio is kind of in this financial strait. They're feeling the pressure to Expand because they can't rely on the revenue streams that originally made Hollywood into the Goliath that it was. So the golden age of Hollywood feels like it's kind of peaking right now and just around the corner, it's kind of going to come to an end because of these mammoth productions like Ben Hur that start to fail. Yes. Andrew, what was your favorite film? From our 1950s lineup. I I know I say
0: this every decade, but I do. (laughs) I mean, I do have one of my top 50 films here, too, which is Orpheus. So that's that's tough. But I I love that film and I love the cranes are flying as well, which honestly, this is what's funny is that with that very recent revisit of Soy Cuba and Soy Cuba was my first Kalatazov film. So that was sort of where my passion began and how it all started. But watching them so closely to each other and revisiting them, now I'm wondering if I actually do think The Cranes Are Flying is better than Soy Cuba. Oh, I think it is. And um, but, I mean, I didn't think so at the time because Soy Cuba blew my mind in such a huge way when I first watched it. But The Cranes Are Flying made me weep like a baby when I watched it the second time. Now The Cranes Are Flying is creeping up. Soy Cuba is creeping down. That's just how things work. That's why I never try and do like a specific list of these are all of my favorite movies. And this is my top 50 and why I never rank anything because it is always changing all the time. And all it takes is one more revisit for me to change my mind. So uh, but those are the two highlights for me. That being said, Sancho the Bailiff, an incredible movie that oh, just is it's a heavy one. And I love a good heavy movie when it's done right and it doesn't feel like it's cheesy or overly Mm -hmm. sentimental and that goes for Tokyo Story as well but Sancho the Bailiff cuts me a little deeper and a little more raw and Invention for Destruction I just think is a delight I loved them all, High Noon a great movie from my childhood my least favorite film from the 50s was definitely The Thing from Another World that being said I had a great time watching that movie and discussing it with you there were no bad movies this decade I don't think (gasps) Oh.
1: Yeah, this was a decade full of great films. We did
0: well. We did good. Yeah. These were good picks. Yeah. Happy for us.
1: You already talked a little bit about The Cranes Are Flying. That was definitely the big surprise for me. I loved, loved, loved that film. I do think it's a masterpiece. And Tokyo Story is another masterpiece for me. I'm I'm happy I finally got to see Ozu's Magnum Opus. Mm-hmm. I was really surprised by films like Rebel Without a Cause and High Noon. They feel like smaller films. They feel a little simpler than those big epics like Tokyo Story. They're still amazing. They're fantastic movies. I'm really happy I saw them. You already said the thing's fun. How can I put my feelings for The Searchers? I don't like The Searchers. I had a feeling that was your least
0: favorite from the decade, just from our discussion
1: absolutely my least favorite. My feelings on it are really kind of all over the place, though. I do think it's a film that kind of justifies genocide and is really racist. I think it's ugly, not visually. It's visually gorgeous, but its heart is just dark, man. I didn't enjoy watching that
0: it's, I, I I have very conflicting views on it as well. It definitely was not my least favorite because it gave me so much to chew on and I did enjoy the visuals so much, which is something I can't really say for the thing from another world. You know, aesthetically, that oh, yeah. film was like, Absolutely, yeah. I've seen that movie a million times before, you know? I've seen yeah. that black and white schlocky 50s horror film a million times. So, The Searchers has that leg up on it. And also, I would agree that there is a dark center to what the film actually says and what's in the film, but I don't think its heart is necessarily in that dark place. I think its heart and its intention is the opposite of that, but the people involved in making that statement are so naive to it and so unaware of their own personal place in this history of the United States and in this perspective on these relations that they are ill-equipped and unable to make the statement they want to.
1: I think that's well put and I think you're being very generous. I would
0: want to watch more John Ford, John
1: Wayne films. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, but these were all bangers. I would honestly recommend these to anyone, all of these films. Especially if you're looking to just get a brief overview of the 50s, which is kind of what we present on this podcast. I really do think we did a great job at showing what the world was doing at this time. And I really enjoyed discussing them all, too. Hell yeah. What a great decade. To any listeners, go through the list.
1: See what pops out at you and just check it out. They're all really, really good. Worth watching. Yeah. All right, what are we watching next week for 1960? Eyes without a face. Eyes without a face.
0: (laughs) Whenever anyone says I really like cerebral horror or if they like camp, if they like campy movies or cerebral horror, I recommend this film. It Mm. is such a unique movie and there's a lot to munch on and I think you're going to have a really fun time with it. Alita Valley from The Third Man, she is... She is much older now. She gets to play a much different character, and I think you're going to be very entertained by her. I am stoked. (laughs) Directed by Georges Franjou, which we will not only be mispronouncing right now, but throughout the entirety of next week's episode, we are (laughs) proud to present that mispronunciation to you all.
1: Eyes Without a Face, 84 minutes. Yeah. Just a quick little film. Yeah, after Ben-Hur. But thank you for Ben-Hur. I thought this was a great episode. I loved wrapping up the 1950s with you with uh, this film. Oh, yeah. I thought it was a great culmination.
0: I did enjoy it. I wasn't falling asleep or bored, so. All right. All right. Well. Let's turn it off. Let's cut. I'm holding out for 30 more seconds. I'm giving you a two-hour file. All right. Yeah. (laughs) Nine, eight, seven, six, five, four. Three, two...